Good afternoon. So good to see many of you today. If you have a Bible, please get ready to turn to Psalm chapter 20. Psalm chapter 20. Hammurabi, Pharaoh, Thutmose III, Ashoka the Great, Alexander the Great, Cyrus the Great, Charlemagne, Ekbar the Great, Augustus Caesar, Attila the Hun, Genghis Khan, Tamerlane, Henry VIII of England, Louis XIV of France, Peter the Great, Frederick II of Prussia, are the names of some of history's greatest kings. During their day, their remarkable influence and power garnered such homage and attention Some were even known by their subjects as gods. Their military might and dominance, their intelligence, wisdom, and political salve, their seemingly apparent favor with the divine deemed them as legends and caused them to be feared and revered by thousands who looked to them as their king. These men lived to make their names great, more conquests, more lands acquired, more power in order that their legacies would live on. But although most of these kings were renowned in their own right, they all shared a common fate. Despite many of their efforts to enshrine their names in the metaphorical halls of immortality, the fact of the matter was they were all mere mortals. They were not gods after all. They all died. They were all buried. All their bodies rotted away in some luxurious tombs and graves. One may recall the famous last words of Alexander the Great, whose final request was that he would be buried with his hands dangling from out of his coffin. He wanted people to know that all the gold and the riches that he accumulated in this world was sheer waste of time, energy, and peace of mind, that he would go empty-handed from this world like every other person who's ever lived. And indeed, Alexander the Great, as well as all the other greats who ever lived, died. But, unlike these most greatest of kings, one king stands apart from them all. He was born into this world into an obscure Jewish carpenter's family in an obscure village in the most obscure way. His relatively short 30-ish years of life, short-lived three and a half years of public ministry involved ethics and spirituality. Yet his words and his works sparked such controversy and ran bitterly afoul with the authorities of his own people to the point he was hung humiliated and dying on a Roman cross, the worst form of death in his day. And the charge the Romans hung above his head read in savage mockery of him and his entire oppressed nation. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And more than 2,000 years later, although Jesus never held any political office, never ruled any nation, never commanded any armies, never traveled the world, never wrote a single book. Yet more songs have been sung to him, more books written about him than anyone who has ever lived in the history of the entire world. Something about this first century man, Jesus, who claimed the most unusual things about himself, impacted humanity internationally and for generations to come. Why is Jesus still talked about and celebrated After 2,000 years later, he walked the earth. How is he considered the most 
significant person in all of history, not by just Christians, but by Time magazines and other reputable resources. Why are we here today, along with billions around the world throughout the generations who profess to be His loyal followers and proclaim Him as the King of all kings? To my knowledge, there are no religions set around some of the greatest kings who's ever lived who are still worshipped to this day. Do you know of any? And author Henry G. Bosch made this observation about Jesus. Socrates taught for 40 years, Plato taught for 50, Aristotle for 40, and Jesus for only three. Yet the influence of Christ's three-year ministry infinitely transcends the impact left by the combined 130 years of teaching from these men who are among the greatest philosophers of all antiquity. Jesus painted no pictures, yet some of the finest paintings of Raphael, Michelangelo, and Leonardo da Vinci received their inspiration from him. Jesus wrote no poetry, but Dante, Milton, and scores of the world's greatest poets were inspired by him. Jesus composed no music, still Haydn and Handel, Beethoven, Bach, and Mendelssohn reached their highest perfection of melody in their hymns, symphonies, and oratories they composed in his praise. You see, every sphere of human greatness has been enriched by this humble carpenter from Nazareth. How? Well, there's much the Scripture has to say about why Jesus is the greatest of the greatest, and our psalm this afternoon gives us a glimpse, a glimpse of why. We're wrapping up part or year two of a 15-part intermittent series through the Psalms titled Summer in the Psalms. And this summer, we looked at chapters 11 through 20, and we will continue in this study next summer in the month of June, July, and August when we will study chapters 21 through 30. I pray that you will be around for it. Amen? Uh, As you know, I've been encouraging our church to continue the tradition every summer to read through the entire book of the Psalms. I hope many of you have been doing so to grow you in your love for God's Word through the Psalms, to grow you in your lamenting, to grow you in your honest and humble prayer to grow you in praising God through times of suffering and sorrow as the psalmists did. With only eight weekdays left of summer, you can attempt to read about 18.75 chapters each day, Monday through Friday, and you'll be able to finish the entire psalms. Or if you started reading in June, you should be about 12 to 15 chapters from finishing the entire book. Good job. Well done if you've been keeping up. If you have not read it at all, you have another chance to do so in your regular Bible reading time, or you can try again with us next summer. The point is, the point that I'm trying to make, read the Psalms, read it over and over and over again in its entirety for your soul's edification. Amen? Psalm 20 is a royal psalm, which means the psalm involves the subject of God's appointed king. Psalm 20 more specifically involves the worship of God's king. As it is known to many students of Scripture, as also a liturgical psalm in conjunction with Psalm 21 which is often seen as a pair together. And what I mean by a liturgical psalm is that it was used in corporate worship gatherings, such as the one that we are participating in right now, to lead and guide God's people in worship, which is the reason why the heading of the psalm says, to the choir master, which means the service leader, whoever was leading the service, just as Brandon led us in service today. Psalm 20 runs very similarly, thematically and literally in conjunction with Psalm 18, which we studied a few weeks ago. If you go back to Psalm 18, you'll see many of the same phrases and themes. Last week, I mentioned how the Psalms use a Hebrew poetic structure to emphasize or highlight certain themes. And in this section of the Psalms, from chapters 15 to 24, 
Last week's Psalm, Psalm 19, is the central focus of how God speaks of his Redeemer to his people through creation and the Scriptures. And Psalm 20 and Psalm 21, along with Psalm 18, speaks of how God delivers his people through his King. But whereas Psalm 18 shows reasons for the people of God to give praise to God by preserving King David specifically, Psalm 20 and Psalm 21 praises God for saving God's promised anointed king. Psalm 20 seems to be mainly an intercessory prayer for this future king, but the psalm also shows us the great impact, the great result that we can experience, the great blessing that we can experience, the impact this king has on his people. So from Psalm 20, I want to share with you two reasons why we can trust in the name of the Lord, two reasons why we can trust in the name of the Lord. Here's the outline so you can follow. Point number one, God saves his king for his people. God saves his king for his people from verses one through five. And point number two, God saves his people through his king from verses six through nine. Again, point number one, God saves his king for his people. Point number two, God saves his people through his king. Brothers and sisters, I pray this message will remind you anew that you have a sovereign king who sits on the throne and is in control. Amen? He rules and reigns graciously and mercifully and powerfully this moment. And as long as Jesus Christ sits on the throne, his people have no worries ultimately. According to Psalm 119.68, Scripture says, He is good and does good. I pray that you'll be encouraged and built up in Him today. I pray whatever you are going through in this life that causes you to worry and to be anxious and to doubt His goodness, that you'll be reminded that He is, in fact, trustworthy. So, dear brother or sister, if you are discouraged in trusting in God, I want to encourage you today. The Word encourages you today to trust in Him again. If you are here and you are not a Christian, welcome. We're so glad that you are here today. If you've been disappointed by human authorities as much as I have been and many of us have been, we pray that you would come to know Jesus, who is known to us as a wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. He is mighty to save and to deliver you from your sin and the hopelessness of this world. So again, trust in Him. Scripture says faith comes by hearing. If you're sitting here and you're thinking to yourself, man, I have no faith in this Christ, in this Jesus whatsoever. Scripture says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the words of Christ. We pray that you will hear his voice and call on him today because God promises us in Romans 10, 13, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. At the close of service, you will hear the testimony of our dear sister Mandy, who is getting baptized today, and she will share how in a difficult time in her life, she called on the name of the Lord and eventually God answered. So I pray that you will call on the Lord today and that he will answer you. So let's turn now to our passage found on page 456 and 457 in the Blue Bibles around you. And as you listen, I want to encourage you to please keep your Bibles open throughout the entire duration of the message and follow along as I read and preach to help you better retain these words. Psalm chapter 20. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. 
May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. Selah. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of our God set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now, I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. Why should we trust in the name of the Lord our God? Point number one, God saves his king for his people. God saves his king for his people from verses 1 through 5. The first observation you can make in this psalm is the various pronouns used throughout the psalm. The second person singular form, you, is used to address the subject of the psalm. You'll see that in verses 1 through 4, which says again, May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices, Selah. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. And at the end of verse 5, may the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Then the pronoun changes briefly in verse 5 to the first person plural, we and our, verse 5, which says, may we shout for joy over your salvation in the name of our God set up our banners. Then again in verse 6, first person singular, I, then to the first person, he, and from verses 7 to 9, back to we and our. But make no mistake about it, there is no confusion in these pronouns. The psalmist makes it very clear who the main subject of the psalm is. Verses 1 through 5 is an intercession for the king. And verse 6 tells us more specifically, this king is the Lord's anointed And verse 9 concludes back to the intercession for the king. O Lord, save the king. Not save us, you see, but save the king. This is another way of Hebrew literary device called inclusio to emphasize a point to bookend the subject of the passage. In the Hebrew, it's much easier to see, but the way that verse 1 should be read is, May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. And verse 5 should be read, May the Lord answer us in the day when we call by saving the king. Now having clarified, the main subject of the psalm is indeed the king, and not you, not me. The all-encompassing question for us and those who participated in the praise of this king through this psalm is, Who? Who is this king? Who is this king? Is it David? Or is it someone else? Or to cut to the chase, is it Jesus? Well, when we interpret Scripture, especially as New Covenant people, meaning we have the entirety of the canon, the complete inerrant Word of God of the Bible, the Old and the New Testament, we must be careful exegetes of the Scriptures. Now, some have misquoted Charles Spurgeon, a famous Baptist preacher of the 19th century, who supposedly said, from every passage of Scripture, we have to make a beeline to the cross. But to this day, no one has been able to cite such a statement from Spurgeon or anything close to it. 
The point is, you can't automatically draw the conclusion, especially from the Old Testament, that the passage is talking about Jesus Christ directly without considering the context, without considering how those in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant understood the passage. Hundreds of years, even before Christ, Jesus was born. In biblical hermeneutics, in biblical interpretation, there's work to be done in the context. A work to be done to understand how a specific passage fits into the framework of God's grand redemptive narrative. For example, I can't say from verse 1, may the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. Well, you can't say, God answered their prayers, He sent Jesus. Or from verse 2, may He send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. Well, God sent Jesus. Ultimately, yes. Ultimately, yes. But we have to try to understand first, how did the people of the Old Testament understand it when they didn't know who Jesus the person was? Well, I said all of that actually to show you that the king of the psalm, in fact, is Jesus, the promised and prophesied Messiah whom the psalmist addresses as his anointed in verse 6. And how this king isn't David himself, but in fact, Jesus the Christ. Yes, it's true. The heading of the psalm says a psalm of David, which can either mean written by David or about David or dedicated to David. So I'm going to give you a couple of reasons how the psalm points us to Jesus Christ. As always, the clearest evidence of the Bible is if the Bible itself says something about the psalm. Specifically, does the New Testament use the particular Old Testament passage and draw a distinct or direct connection to Christ? Well, Psalm 20 isn't specifically used or quoted in the New Testament, but Acts chapter 2 verses 29 through 36 speaks clearly of how David understood Christ in the Psalms. Peter preaching at Pentecost explained in Acts chapter 2 verses 29 through 36, which says this, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he, David, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, the Spirit, at Pentecost that you yourself are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the household, house of Israel, therefore know for certain that God has made him Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. But there's more evidence that the psalmist in Psalm 20 is speaking of Jesus the king, the context of the psalm shows us this anointed king is Jesus, the anointed king of God. Although the psalm provides no certain immediate context in when or where David wrote this psalm, remember I shared with you last week, the previous psalms have been a setup to clearly show that the king of Psalm 20 wasn't David himself with the promised offspring of God. So follow with me, track with me. Psalm 15 showed us that Jesus is the blameless one, the holy king. Psalm 16, show that he, Jesus, is the path of life in whom there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. Psalm 17, show that he, Jesus, is the hope of resurrection. Psalm 18, the really long psalm, 
showed us that Jesus is the deliverer. And Psalm 19 showed us that he, Jesus, is the Son of God, the crown jewel, the preeminent one of creation, the bridegroom, the champion of God, the one whom all creation and all of the scriptures points to, the one in whom there is nothing hidden from his glory, David's Redeemer, in whom David found the words of his mouth and the meditations of his heart acceptable to God. And so David, the psalmist, leads his people in the worship of this king and intercessory prayer for King Jesus in Psalm 20. In this way, Psalm 20 is unique. In the New Testament, you won't find such a prayer, of course, because in the New Testament, victory is already won in Christ. But hundreds of years before Jesus is even born, David is foreseeing this king's complete and final victory and how his own life's purpose and meaning and ultimately his soul's salvation was dependent on him. Verses 1 through 5 is a succession of 10 blessing prayers for this king and how God saves his king for his people. Look with me to verse 1 again. It says this, May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. The psalmist is calling on the name of Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. May Yahweh answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. You see, David was recalling the covenant God had made with him in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 to 13. Write that reference down, if so you please. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 13, which says this. God had promised David with these words, When your days are fulfilled... And you lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And so David knowing this covenant, David believing in this promise, although God's essence was hidden from him, David knew well the faithful and powerful name of God by which he was known and to his forefathers the name of the God of Jacob, the name of Elohim of Jacob, the mighty God of Jacob, or Israel, the people of God. The psalmist leads his people in praying, may Yahweh Elohim answer you and protect you. The psalmist prays in verse 2, may he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. The psalmist is using parallelism, another Hebrew poetic tool, to mean a similar thing in two different ways. To help and support from the sanctuary or Zion, from where God dwells, the holy hill of God, means to ask for divine intervention. It's it's not some help like, hey, I'm I'm struggling to lift this uh, podium, so can you come and help No, it's talking about divine intervention or complete victory from God. When you have the help and support from the God of heaven, victory is guaranteed. In verse 3, the psalmist prays, May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. Two words for offering and burnt sacrifices mean similar things. The sacrifices in which a person brought before God in submission to God and their worship of God. The Hebrew phrase actually says and means, may God regard your sacrifices fat. Fat meaning rich or pleasing or acceptable. It was a prayer for God's anointed king's sacrifice to be fully pleasing and acceptable to God, 
the Father. The next word you see in the psalm is the word Selah, which means a pause. Perhaps a break in the service, a transition of sorts maybe, which perhaps was the part in the worship service where the priest would literally offer sacrifices to God. So maybe a few minute pause, a few minutes, maybe 30 minutes, who knows? But Selah. Verse 4, look at verse 4. It says, May He grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. It's a prayer for David's offspring's plans or counsels or strategies to be granted, to be backed by God, to be supported by God, to be fulfilled by God. And then in verse 5, in interceding for the king to Yahweh Elohim, for him to answer and protect the king in the day of trouble, to help and support and remember and guard all his sacrifice, to grant and fulfill all his plans, the psalmist joins with the congregation in shouts of praise. Look at verse 5. May we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of our God set up our banners. So, what does God granting the king victory have to do with God's people? And what does it have to do with you and me? What does it have to do with us today? You see, in history, the livelihood of the people were intimately tied and connected to the livelihood of the king. If the king is a great king, the people of the nation benefit from his conquest and his dominion, relatively speaking, depending on what kind of king you have. If the king is benevolent, the people will experience his grace and blessings all around. And that's why in battle, everyone is going for trying to kill the enemy king, right? That's why the king is the most protected. You kill the king and the battle is over. It's done. So here in this psalm, God's granting of the king's victory is an occasion for the people of God to shout with joy in praise and to pledge their loyalty and declare His victory by raising up banners, waving flags of triumph for all to see. They are expressing their confidence in their King who goes forth in the name of Yahweh Elohim. God saves His King for His people. But notice how this victory is future and not yet complete. The final phrase of verse 5, May the Lord fulfill all your petitions quickly reminds us the victory of the king has not yet been accomplished. Remember, verses 1 through 5 is a prayer lifted up to God for God to answer. But prayers offered up in the name of Yahweh, according to the promises of God, already written down for us, is just as good as answered. Hence, what you see is the psalmist's confidence in the next verses. Deliverance and salvation of God's future king hasn't happened yet. But notice the people's allegiance. Notice the psalmist's assurance in verse 6 and his trust in verse 7 and his discernment and commitment to the king in verse 8. We'll get more into that in the next point. But before we go there, brothers and sisters, I want to ask you a question for you to examine your hearts. I wonder if you share in such a joy over the salvation you have in Jesus the king. How much more should we, those who profess to be His people, those who profess to be His children, His born-again believers and followers, joyfully, joyfully, confidently wave the banners of allegiance and declare His victory to all we meet? Why do some of us live with such discontentment and discouragement and dissatisfaction when God's anointed King is indeed victorious 
And the riches of his spoils have overflown onto you beyond what you can ask or imagine. A question for you, brother or sister, friend, visitor. Is Christ your king? Is Christ your king? Are you loyal to him? Do you understand what he has done for you? Or, as Brother Key prayed in the prayer of our confession, is your king yourself? Is your king perhaps someone else? Your children, your spouse, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, the person you want to date, you look to them for salvation. You look to them for relief. You don't obey the word of God because Jesus is not your king. Who is the king of your life? Brothers and sisters, I pray that you do not miss the obvious lesson here in this psalm. Just as God's people of the Old Testament believed in Christ's victory by faith in Jesus, the coming Messiah, we as the people of God, of the new covenant, believe in Christ's victory by faith in Jesus who has come and has already won the battle on our behalf and he is coming again. Let me say that again. Just as the people of the Old Testament believed in Christ's victory by faith in Jesus, the coming Messiah, we as the people of God in the new covenant believe in Christ's victory by faith in Jesus who has already come and has already won the battle on our behalf and he is coming again. Brothers and sisters, we stand on the side of history where Jesus himself declared in Luke 24, 44, these are my words that I spoke to you while I am still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and of the prophets and of the Psalms must be fulfilled. And not only has he said it, he has fulfilled it, hallelujah. He has done it. So brothers and sisters, if you claim to be a Christian, believe and trust in this king. God saved his king. God gave Jesus the victory. Which leads me to my next point. How? How did God do it? Why trust in the name of the Lord our God? Point number two. God saves his people through his king. God saves his people through his king. Look at verse six. Now I know that the Lord saved his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Having known the covenant-keeping God, Yahweh, having prayed in faith for the victory of God's king, why did the psalmist trust? Why? How did the psalmist trust? He trusted in God's word, you see. He trusted in God's promises that salvation comes through Jesus Christ, his anointed king. That's why verse 6 turns to a first-person singular pronoun. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. Brothers and sisters, simply what I'm trying to say, what this passage is trying to say, is that you can be sitting in a crowd of a hundred people as you are in this room. You can be sitting in the church every Sunday surrounded by a group of people who are loving Jesus and praising Jesus and worshiping Jesus and hearing Jesus and hearing his word preached. Yet if in your hearts, if in your mind you do not believe in him, if in your heart you don't know Jesus is his anointed, then the blessing of his salvation, the gift of his salvation simply isn't yours. The victory of Jesus isn't yours. So let me ask you for your heart's examination. Do you know, as the psalmist personally confesses, now I know, now 
I know, I am confident, I am sure that the Lord saves his anointed. Do you know? Do you know or not? Brothers and sisters, friends and visitors, this is the whole reason why since Jesus won the victory 2,000 years ago, Christians have been meeting Sunday after Sunday after Sunday to declare praise to his great name, to proclaim and to be reminded of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah, the best news you will ever hear. That God, who is holy and unlike any other, created the universe and created us, you and me, in his image for us to know his amazing, awesome glory and the oneness of his love. But man, having been tempted by Satan, distrusted and disobeyed God's word, man rebelled against God, choosing to be gods unto ourselves. And as a result, man was separated from God. For sinful man cannot be one with a holy God. And we were helpless and incapable of saving ourselves. And we were powerless to restore the broken relationship, the infinite chasm between us and a holy God. And we were set on a consequential and eventual path to death en route to face the eternal punishment and judgment of God in hell. But do you know the most gracious, amazing words of Scripture? But God. But God had a plan from the very beginning to redeem a people for his own possession, that they may shout with joy over his salvation, his plan, as David and all of God's people since the first foretold gospel in Genesis 3 and repeated over and over and over again through the covenants, through the promises, through the prophecies and the psalms told, spoken, written for us as Hebrews 1, as our sister read, Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. God's plan from the very beginning was to send us Jesus, the anointed King. Hallelujah. Who came as fully God and fully man to live the sinless life, to die the substitute death on the cross, to suffer the punishment we would have suffered in eternal hell. Jesus paid it all. He declared, it is finished. They thought that he was dead. They thought that it was done. But on the third day, Jesus rose again from the grave because Yahweh answered him on the day of trouble. Yahweh helped him and supported him from Zion because Yahweh regarded Christ's sacrifice full and final. By God's power, Jesus conquered sin, Satan, and death forever, once and for all. Hallelujah. God granted all of Jesus' plans and heard all of his prayers in John 17 for the great praise of our God, for the great joy of his people. Hallelujah. That whosoever anyone and everyone who would repent and believe and trust in Him will not die and go to hell, but experience new and abundant life here on earth and eternal life in heaven with Him forevermore. If you are here and you're not a Christian or you're not sure that you are, can I ask you the question, who is your king? Who is your king? Whom can you truly and fully depend on for salvation, for rescue, from your brokenness, from your sorrows, from your meaninglessness, from your purposelessness? Maybe you can say no one. That's what you say. But maybe you say, I trust in myself. Well, how's that going for you? How's trusting in yourself going for you? Scripture says all have fallen short of the glory of God. No one is righteous, not even one. If you think being the God of your own life is going great, 
you are utterly deceived. No one is righteous, not even one. What I'm trying to tell you in my intro is that even the greatest of men, even the greatest of women, even the greatest of kings all return to dust, empty-handed and empty-hearted. But Jesus offers you everlasting joy. Jesus offers you everlasting peace. Jesus offers you everlasting oneness with him. So, dear friend and visitor, if you're not a Christian, repent of your sins this moment. Believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again for you. Trust in him today and tomorrow and the next day. Step by step, day by day. Talk to me at the close of service. Talk to Pastor Jeremy at the outside door or talk to Brandon Lee, our service leader at this door. Or talk to somebody smiling next to you. We would love to talk to you about how you can follow Jesus. Brothers and sisters, when the troubles of life come your way, when the sorrows and sufferings of this life pummel you to the ground, do you remember Jesus, the anointed one, the victorious one, the saving one? Will you declare in faith with the congregation of the redeemed the certain guaranteed profession of verse 7? Some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. You see, the people of this world trust in their chariots and in their horses, their own strengths and their own might. But we, but we, the people of God, trust in the faithful and good name of the Lord our God. Amen? And our faith and confidence and hope in Him is not some abstract, some distant, some vague, made-up faith. You see, their end is certain, and our end is also certain. Look at verse 8. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. Those who trust in the gods of this world and in themselves will certainly collapse and fall. It doesn't matter whether you believe it or not, because we know that the word of God will stand. Those who trust in chariots and horses will collapse and fail, but those in Christ, listen to these words of Isaiah 40, verses 28 through 31, which says, Have you not known... Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and to him who has no might, he increases strength. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Brothers and sisters, even when we are afflicted in every way, we are not crushed. Even when we are perplexed, we are not in despair. When we are persecuted, we are not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Always, always, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. So yes, death is at work within us, but life, but life of Christ flows through us. The victory of Christ flows in us. He lives through us. What that simply means is that nothing on earth, even physical death, will keep us from our glorious future. Amen? Resurrection and eternal life with Him. I love Dr. James Hamilton's translation of the last phrase of verse 8. We rise and bear witness. Although we may face a thousand defeats here on earth, we rise to bear witness. We are witnesses. Hallelujah. 
We may fall, but we will rise. We will bear witnesses when Jesus returns on that final day and our faith will turn to sight. Hallelujah. Jesus is the anointed king who is enthroned forever. Hallelujah. Jesus is the anointed king whose kingdom will have no end. Hallelujah. Brothers and sisters, standing on this side of the history, knowing full well Christ has won the victory, may we ever join with the congregation of the saints and declare like them in verse 9, O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. In other words, give victory to the king. Give him highest praise and glory that everyone who will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Why should we trust in the name of the Lord? Be confident of this. God saved his king for his people. God saved his people through his king, Jesus the Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a reminder for us to know in Christ we have been saved. Father, not based on our works, not based on our merits, not based on anything we have done, but by your sovereign grace and election, you have chosen us from the foundation of the world. Father, we cannot lose our salvation because you are the one who saved us. What a glorious truth and a promise to know that through Christ we have salvation. Father, what a joyous occasion to celebrate the salvation of our dear sister Mandy. She called on you, you heard, and she was saved. Father, may we never grow weary. May we never grow cold in rejoicing in this salvation with the congregation of saints of generations past and generations future. We love you. We thank you for this reminder. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.